0: This Torah class is brought to you by torahanytime.com. Tonight we have a a very special class discussing the Seder nights and Haggadah. What are we trying to do? What are we trying to do at the Seder night and the Haggadah? When we're saying the Haggadah, what are we trying to do? And the answer is we're trying to pass our identities, number one, is to ourselves. Who are we? Number two is we we'll gonna pass our identities to our children. So we are uh, we're going to talk about a generation. We are a people of storytellers. We are a nation that tells stories. How do we pass our message down? How does a parent pass their message down, who they are to their children? And the answer is storytellers. We are storytellers. We are a nation of storytellers. And the, our main storyteller is Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu tells us our story from the earliest times down to his time, to the coming out of Egypt. And that's the story we're going to pass down to our children. We have to in, imbibe our identity into our children very simply by telling our story. If we don't tell our story and our children don't know our stories then they will have a lack of identity. They'll be uh, messing up. Their identities will be messed up. this is a problem today. You know, today we have a problem of transmission. Transmission is passing the story down from generation to generation. What is our story? What is Jewish history? What is the story of the Jews? What is the story of uh, God in history? So we are a nation of storytellers. And our main storytelling night is Pesach. Our main storytelling night is Pesach. How do we know? Because we have a special mitzvah of Haggadah. We will tell your children, your son on that day saying, it's a mitzvah to talk on Haggadah, about the Haggadah, about the story of coming out of Egypt. Why? There's a mitzvah to tell the story. Tremendous mitzvah to tell the story. We're going to talk about it more in detail how do we pass down our identities to our children? And the answer is very simply, tell them your story. Tell them your father's story. Tell them your grandfather's story. Tell them the story of Judaism going back to as far as recorded in early history. So that is how we pass down identities, telling the story. And where do we see this? And the answer is we see this with Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu Moses whose name was not even given by his mother. His real name was Tuvia, or Tov. Big discussion in the Gemara, who was his real name, was Moshe's real name. But we have, his name is the name given to him by a non-Jewish woman who adopted him, Pharaoh's daughter, who adopted him, Bitya, who adopted him as a baby, and she gave him his name. So now Moshe Rabbeinu is at Mount Sinai, and here the Midrash says his sheep ran away, the little baby sheep ran away. And Moshe Rabbeinu, the good shepherd, shepherd, runs after the sheep. And he sees this burning bush. And Hashem is there. And Hashem says, you are the one I choose to go and lead the Jews out of Egypt. Uh, you are the one. You're the one I chose. And Moshe Rabbeinu says, very important words. Mi Anochi. He starts off his line. We're going to talk about the rest of the line. But what does he start off the line with? How was his first words to God? Me, Anochi. Who am I? 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 Obviously, he continues, Who am I to stand before Pharaoh? But the first words are, Who am I? Moshe Rabbeinu has a tremendous identity issue. Who am I? I'm a Jew. And I'm an Egyptian. I was raised in Pharaoh's palace. I'm a prince of Egypt. On the other hand, I'm told by my parents, who I met through my mother, who was feeding me, that I'm a Jew. I'm a former slave. I'm, I'm a descendant of slaves. So who am I? Me Who am I to take, to stand before Pharaoh? Who am I? And this is the question which we have to answer on Saturday night. For each one of us, who am I? What am I? I'm a Jew. What does that mean? And this is the question we have to answer on the Saturday night. What is the difference between this night and all the other nights? And one of the answers is that this night is a night to transfer to our children, our heritage. This is a night of telling them the story, our long history, our Jewish history. Tell them who we are to answer this question. This is the question we have to answer on Bessa. Who are we? What are we? And when a child says, who am I? He'll know why. Because it have the story. He'll remember the story. This is who I am. I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew with a long, long history. Thousands of years old. The history of the Jewish people is thousands of years old. We're very old, ancient people. So we are Hebrews from Ivri, from across the river. We are always strangers in foreign lands. We are always, the world is on one side, the world says, and we are on the other side. We are always, our identity has never been something Jews could take for granted. It involved, among other things, the courage to swim against the tide. To stand apart from the spirit of the times. Behind the simple question of a child. Why is this night different? Manishtana halayla zayn, is a deeper query. Why is this people different? Or who am I? Why am I different? We answer by telling a story. The story of our ancestors long ago. But also the story that we are part of. We are living the history. We, the Jewish people, are living Jewish history. We are making Jewish history. We're living Jewish history every single day. Pesach is the festival of Jewish identity. It is the night on which we tell our children who they are. And it's interesting because the Talmud says, and this we quote in the Haggadah, she umaror munachim lefanecha, tell the story in a very convincing way and have your props ready for the children. Why? Tell the story when you have matzah and maror in front of you. Tell the story where you have the props, when they can taste the bread of affliction. And they can taste the bread of freedom, which is the same bread. The matzah is the bread of freedom and the bread of affliction. And they can taste the bitterness of the the exile in Egypt, the maror. They can taste it. So on a superficial reading of the Bible, of the Torah, Moshe Rabbeinu is asking, who am I to stand before Pharaoh? He was not asking about identity, but really about his personal worthiness for such a mission. Moshe, the Torah intimates, was not a person convinced of his place in history. Who am I to go and take the Jews out of Egypt? Who am I to go and talk to Pharaoh? Who am I? They will not believe me, he says. I am slow of speech and tongue. Please send someone else. He was, later on the Torah tells us, a very humble person. He was more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. The Torah says in the uh, Midbar chapter 12, he accepted the divine call not because he held a high opinion of himself, because the task was real, the need was great, and the hour was pressing. He had greatness thrust upon him. Hashem threw greatness on Moshe He was not willing. He did not want the greatness. Hashem threw it on him. It was thrust upon him. There is, though, a deeper level, which Moshe Rabbein was indeed asking a question of identity. He faced a problem that has become acute. Everywhere Jews are, even in Israel, the identity problem, we are part of a wider culture. Today, with the media, it's impossible to escape. It's a part, but any person has a cell phone, who has a smartphone, it's impossible, TV, radio, whatever it is, you walk down the street. We're living in a strange and a foreign culture. We cannot live in a ghetto. There's no ghettos today. We are part of a wider culture. A biographer, if he's trying to make, write a story about Moshe Abel's life, describing Moshe when he first hears the call of Hashem would have difficulty knowing who Moshe was and where his loyalties lie. This was a man rescued as a child by an Egyptian princess, adopted by an Egyptian princess, raised in Pharaoh's palace brought Abba as an Egyptian prince when he escaped to Midian and, and rescued Yitro's daughters and brought, and, he, and he, they go back to their the father and they ask, who saved you? And he, he asked the, the daughters who saved you? He, they tell him, an Egyptian rescued us. Ish hitzilani. hitzilani. An Egyptian man saved us. In appearance, manner, dress, and speech. Moshe Rabbeinu resembled an Egyptian. Not an Israelite. So Moshe's question, who am I, was therefore real and acute. Who was he and where did his destiny lie? Was he the Egyptian or an Israelite, a prince or a slave, a member of the ruling family of the greatest empire of the time, or part of a people groaning under oppression? The mind reels at such a choice. Before him lay two alternative futures. On the one hand, a life of quietude in Midian with his father-in-law's family, tending the flock in remote pastures, far from the noise of politics and power. On the other hand, lay a life of struggle, of almost impossible challenge, to lead a people from slavery and teach them to be free, servants of no man but of Hashem alone. What Moshe Rabin discovered, along with his flocks on the mountain, was that there are some choices from which you cannot hide. Almost the first words Hashem tells him are, I am Hashem of your father. I am God of Abraham, Hashem of Yisach, and God of Jacob. Hashem is telling Moshe Rabbeinu his history. This is what we do with our children. Who am I daddy? Who am I mommy? What am I? We tell them, you are a child of Abraham, of Rami Abraham, You're a child of Sarah, of You are a child of Yitzhak. You're a child Of Rivka, you're a child of uh, Yaakov and Leah and Rachel. You're a child of our ancestors. And then comes the most enigmatic words when Hashem telling Moshe Rabbele who he is. Hashem says, I am who I am. So, but instead of Hashem introducing himself to Moshe straight away, first he tells Moshe who he is. Who are you, Moshe? You are the child of Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. You are a child of these three people who left the securities of the land, of their birthplace, of their father's house, to begin a journey to an unknown destination. Their only security was the voice of God. Moshe Hashem is, saying, is not a prince of Egypt, but the child of his ancestors. And therefore, the brother of those who at that moment were tasting the bitterness of slavery. Their plight was Moshe Rabbeinu's responsibility. Their fate was his fate in his innermost heart. Moshe Rabbeinu knew this. These are my brothers. Their fate is my fate. They are slaves in a foreign land, and I feel that. There is a fascinating verse in the beginning of his story. One day, Moshe Rabbeinu grew up. He went out to where his people were, and he saw their hard labor. The Torah says in in Exodus chapter 2, verse 11, even then, Moses knew he was one of them. Seeing a Hebrew being beaten by an Egyptian taskmaster. He intervened. To be a Jew is to know that one cannot be indifferent when one peoples are suffering. Israel, says Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai, the great Kabbalist, the author of the Zohar, is like a single body with one soul. When one is injured, all feel the pain. Moshe Rabbeinu felt the pain of his brothers. He went out to see the pain and suffering of his brothers. In a moment of truth, they knew that to be a Jew is to be part of a covenant of faith, through which all Israel, every single Jew, is part of the identity, of entity of Israel. We are all part of one entity of Israel. As the Gemara says in Shavuot, In in, uh, page 39A, Jewish identity is a phenomenon of birth because ultimately we carry within us the DNA, the genes, and not only the genes, but also the hopes, the fears, the commitments and dreams of our forefathers. Our God is the God of Abraham and Sarah and of the hundreds of generations of of their descendants whose children we are. That is what a child should discover on Pesach. We are part of a chain of tradition. Our ancestors were great. Our ancestors left their homes, left their lands, and followed the word of God. That's who we are. We are part of that tremendous tradition of following the word of God wherever God wants us to be. That is what a child discovers on Pesach. Even though it may be many years before he or she can articulate these these words in their terms, we are part of a story story. That began long before our birth. And will continue. Remember this. Our story will continue even after we are gone.
1: More than identity is
0: something after we are no longer here. More than identity is something we choose. It is something that chooses us to be a Jew is to hear a voice from the past. Summoning us to often tempestuous and nevertheless a demanding future. And knowing that this is the narrative of who I am can't escape. This is who I am. I'm part of this narrative. I'm part of this history. This is what Moshe Rabbeinu discovers alone on the mountain, washing a bush that seemed to catch fire and seemed to burn, but didn't. Many legends of heroes in antiquity. That's interesting. Let's compare the story of the Torah about Moshe Rabbeinu, our hero, Moses the hero, with all the other stories of heroes of that time. Many legends of heroes in antiquity share a common narrative structure. The hero's birth is fraught with danger. As a child, he is exposed to the elements in a way that normally lead to death. Instead, however, he is rescued and brought up by adoptive parents. Only much later does he discover his true identity. This is something like the the tale told of the Babylonian hero, Sargon, among others, Cyrus, Romulus and Remus, Karna, Paris, others, many other stories. There's also the story of Moshe Rabbeinu. However... It's totally opposite. In one respect, Moshe Abenu's narrative is diametrically different from all the other narratives. In all the other stories, the hero is a person of noble birth who is brought up by a family in humble circumstances and only later discovers that royal blood flows in his veins. In the case of Moshe, it's opposite completely. He's brought up as a prince. His true identity is he belongs to a nation of slaves. The story of Moshe Rabbeinu is not a myth. It's an anti-myth. A protest against the social and spiritual assumptions of the mythic age. In myth, people are born to greatness. The universal, The universe is hierarchical. Some are born to rule. Others, the vast majority, to be ruled. The view common to all pagan cultures and held by the Greek philosophers was what Judaism denied. Heroism is not a fact of birth. It is a matter of moral courage. It is not found only or even primarily among kings or princes. Our forefathers and mothers, Abraham and Sarah, Yitzhak and Rivka, Yaakov, Rachel and Leah, these are simple people living ordinary lives, transfigured only by a vision, a call. And one of the biggest proofs of this is King Saul. We have to realize the heroes of of the myths, are not our our heroes. Our heroes are anti-heroes. They're normal people. They're normal people living normal lives. And then they hear the call of God and they raise themselves to a higher level. Let's take an example. King Saul, first Jewish king of Israel, first king of Israel, looks the part. The Torah tells us he is tall, head and shoulders above his contemporaries, yet he lacks the moral strength needed by a leader david hamelech the greatest king we ever had who took over from saul his son-in-law the son-in-law of saul he was the youngest of eight brothers it's so insignificant that when samuel Shmuel the prophet on hashem's instructions visits the family they forget all about him samuel says you bring me all your sons i'm going to pick one of them to be the messiah king until the prophet samuel says samuel uh yishai you have any more sons oh and then yishai remembers yes 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 i have one more son it's with the sheep bring him quickly true royalty the torah intimates does not lie in physical strength not lie in outward appearance or noble ancestry what does it lie in something inside It's greatness inside, it's humility, it's morals, it's ethics, it's closeness to God. That brings greatness. Not accidentally does the life of Moshe contradict the stories told of other heroes of antiquity. He is not a prince in disguise. His greatness lies in the fact he is the child of slaves, whose lives were touched and transformed by the word of Hashem. So David Americ's brothers, his king, the king's brothers, they didn't even know his greatness. No one knew his greatness. Only the prophet Samuel. Only after, even Samuel didn't think David Amerik was gonna be great. Only until Hashem reveals it to him. It seems that those who the world despises, Hashem loves. A child of slaves can be nobler than a prince. Hashem's standards are not power or privilege, as Hashem tells Samuel just before he first Set sights on King David. Hashem does not see as a man sees. Adam Roe a man judges by appearances. Hashem Roe Belevav, God judges by the heart. Book of Samuel 1, chapter 16, verse 7, beautiful verse. To have faith as Judaism understands it is to recognize Hashem's image in the weak, the powerless, the afflicted, the suffering fight for their cause in deciding that his destiny lay not in an Egyptian palace with his people. Imagine, Moshe Rabbeinu had this tremendous choice. He could have escaped completely in Pharaoh's palace. He was a prince of Egypt. He could have been the next king. Very similar to Esther. There is a connection between Purim and Pesach, the rabbis say. That's why Purim is always on a barbed to be right next to Pesach. There's a message over there. Esther and Moshe Rabbeinu gave up Their destinies to be part of the Jewish people. They they realized that their destiny lay not in Egyptian palace, but with his people. Moshe Abenu helped write. One of the greatest narratives of hope in the literature of mankind. We have to understand the Torah gives us. One of the greatest narratives of hope in the literature of mankind. That a nation of slaves can become a free nation. under under God Pesach is a festival of our national festival of nationhood of freedom, of the rebirth of Israel this most Jewish of Jewish festivals reaches back further into ancient times more than any living customs of any part of the civilized world today it is celebrated now exactly as it has been observed for nearly 2,000 the world has changed. Nations have vanished from the face of the earth. Others have made their way into the annals of history. But only this one nation, the Jewish nation, is still here, cherishing its ancient customs. True to itself, remembering the suffering of its ancestors. It still prays on the ancient language and the ancient formulas to the eternal God. This nation of slaves are now free men, Israel. What is it to see the presence of Hashem in history? This question is exceptionally difficult to answer. Ancient societies were interested in the past. They, like we, wanted to know how we came to be here, why society was the way it was and how the universe was formed. Yet none before ancient Israel saw the unfolding of events as intrinsically meaningful. A narrative of redemption. Our Torah is all about, very important, a narrative of redemption. And this is what we are celebrating on Pesach night. We are celebrating a narrative of redemption in the past. And we believe a narrative of redemption in the future. Lashana haba yishalayim. We sing at the end of the Haggadah. Next year in Jerusalem. Habah the rebuilt Jerusalem listen we're living now I'm living now in the rebuilt Jerusalem which is being built as I talk as I talk everywhere you go in your see cranes massive cranes building construction railways bridges apartment buildings big tall skyscrapers yet none before ancient Israel saw the unfolding events as intrinsically meaningful. Indeed, virtually all later societies who came to share this vision did so under the influence of the Hebrew Bible. In our religious vision, the past becomes more than a collection of tales, a projection of human experience, or a system of moral examples. It becomes an intimate part of our destiny. By looking at our past, we can see our future. We can interpret our future. Nothing illustrates this more profoundly, by the way, the story of Exodus shapes the Jewish imagination, in fact, the imagination of the world. Freedom from slavery, freedom from tyranny. Not only of the successive generations of those who live their lives by faith, even of profoundly secular figures in our history. The sequence of exile and homecoming, exodus and redemption seems from the very beginning to have been part of the basic structure of Jewish consciousness. Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, are exiled from Eden, Gan Eden, because of their sin. Cain, Cain, the son of Adam and Eve, is sentenced to a life of exile because he killed his brother. The builders of the Tower of Babel are scattered throughout the earth. Sin is a disturbance to the order of the universe and leads to exile and displacement. Already foreshadowed in these opening chapters. Is this is the possibility of an end of days in which mankind, repenting of its sins, seems to be far away from us, experiences a collective homecoming? In Isaiah's word, in chapter 11, verse 6 to 9, he says, The wolf shall live with the sheep, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid. They will neither harm nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of knowledge of Hashem. As the waters cover the sea. It's a new Eden. New garden of Eden, And there will be a benign flood. It won't be a flood of water. It will be a flood of knowledge. Of God. As the waters cover the sea. What a beautiful idea. Another flood. But this will be a flood of knowledge. It will be a flood of knowledge of Hashem. This for the Torah is the metaphysical structure of history as a whole. Harmony. Broken by wrongdoing. Followed by exile. An acknowledgement and atonement and eventual return to harmony. And that's Jewish history. That's the history of the world in a nutshell. One of the most striking facts about the patriarchal families is that they all experience exile. Abraham and Isaac are both forced through famine to travel to the land of the Philistines. Abraham was also forced to travel to the land of Egypt, which we're going to talk about. Jacob, Jacob, suffers exile twice. Wants to escape Esau, but he runs to his future father in law, his uncle Laban, a second time to be joined with his son Joseph in Egypt. And none of this is exile the result of sin. And it is the first instance that provides the interpretive clue to the rest of our history. Let's go to the 12th chapter of Reshit, of Genesis, almost immediately after God's call to Abraham to leave his land, birthplace, and father's house. And then Abraham was not called Abraham, he was called Abram. Abram, the high father. No sooner has Abram left his land, and he comes to Canaan, we read there was famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt. He senses danger, fearing the Egyptians will kill him, and takes Sarai, his wife, into the royal harem. Sarai, saying she is Abraham's sister, is indeed taken away into Pharaoh's palace which is then visited by a series of plagues. Pharaoh then sends the couple away with tremendous amount of gifts. And that's how Abraham became wealthy. The episode seems to disturb the narrative logic of the story of our forefathers. Why, if Hashem wants Abraham Abraham, to go to the land of Canaan, does he force him to leave almost as soon as he arrived? The Midrash Rabbah, one of our Midrashim, a beautiful Midrashim. you got to read these Midrashim on the Chumash to understand the stories of the Chumash. An early rabbinic commentary from the 2nd century CE gives us what is undoubtedly the correct answer. Why did God make a famine when he sent Abraham to Canaan? Why did God force him to go to Egypt? Holy One blessedly said to our father Abraham, go forth and tread a path for your children. For you will find that everything written in connection with Abraham is connect, written in connection with his children. Of Abraham it says, and there was famine in the land, Genesis chapter twelve. And of Israel it was said, for these two years more there has been famine in the land. So much famine in the whole world, in the known world at that time there was famine until Joseph saved the, the world. For two years there was famine in the land of Abraham, and Abraham went down to Egypt. And of Israel and our fathers went down into Egypt of Abraham to reside there. Of Israel, we have come to reside in this land. And so on through a long series of linguistic and substantive parallels between Abraham's fate and the later experience of the Israelites. The exiles of Abraham, Isaac, and Yaakov, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are, in other words, premonitions of what will happen later to their descendants. It is as if the patriarchs and matriarchs of the Jewish people had rehearsed in advance the fate of their children not necessarily knowing what they were doing, but nonetheless laying the foundations of future hope. The Israelites exiled and enslaved will be liberated and redeemed, not only because Hashem said so, because he had done so in the past. He had shown them several times in different ways. He was with the ancestors of the nation, protecting them and bringing them safely back. By the time we open the book, of Exodus, of Shemot, we already know something of immense significance. History is full of unpredictable reversals, especially Jewish history. Joseph Yosef had given the Israelites a haven in the land of Egypt, but there was always a possibility of a new king who did not know Joseph, as we see later on in chapter 1 of Exodus, verse 8. A protected minority can become a vulnerable minority. There is nothing in the Bible or Jewish faith that speaks of historical inevitably. To live in time is to be exposed to the hazards of time. But Israel knows from its own history that however long it may seem to be delayed, redemption is always at hand and will happen. Hashem will bring deliverance in the future. Because Hashem brought deliverance in the past. That is our history. That is what we learn from history. We can be exiled. But we will be delivered. Sooner or later we will be delivered. That is what we learn from the story of the Exodus. That's our Pesach history. And that's what we see in the history of the Jews in Babylon. And later on the Jews of the the Roman Empire. Which is slowly being redeemed from exile today. stage of our history form the basis of the vision of hope that is shared by all our prophets israel may suffer exile but we will return and this is the prophet hosea 11:11 he says the jews will come back speedily flying like birds out of egypt i'll restore the fortunes of my people israel says amos in the name of hashem They shall rebuild deserted cities and live in them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. Boy, Israel is flowing with wine today. Israeli wine, amazing wine. Make gardens and eat their fruit, beautiful fruits. Moses himself, one of his darkest visions, and Pasha Kitabo, full of curses, ends with the unshakable assurance. Even so, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them and shall not detest them to the point of destruction to the point of breaking my covenant with them, for I am Hashem, their God. I shall remember for them the covenant of the early ones, those I took out of the land of Egypt before the eyes of the nations, in order to be their God. I am Hashem. We have this promise. This is one of the messages of the Haggadah. We were slaves and we were redeemed. We can be slaves in the future, but we will be redeemed. There may be holocausts in the future, but we will survive and be redeemed and come back from our exiles. I am ashamed. Micha says it simply, as in the days when you come out of Egypt, I will show you my wonders, chapter seven, verse 15. What would be, will be again. The Exodus is more an event in the past. It was a precursor of redemption in the future. Israel, as Moshe been warned, would not dwell securely in its land. Moshe Ben says at the end of the Torah, it will forget its moral and spiritual vocation. It will be attracted to the pagan cultures of its neighbors. By doing so, it will lose its reason for existence and find itself unable at times of crisis to summon the shared vision and collective energy needed to prevail against neighboring imperial powers. It would suffer defeat and exile. It would undergo its dark night of the soul. It would, as Ezekiel says, as the prophet Ezekiel, our hope is destroyed. This is where the hatikvah came from, the opposite. Odlo mm-hmm. Yahskal says, the prophets, he says, our people will lose their hope. And we say on a hatikvah, odlo Abda we still have our hope. Why? Because we're basing ourselves on our prophecies that God will come through for us. This is what lies behind the words. Well, the Haggadah says, now we are here, next year in the land of Israel. Now slaves. Next year, we shall be free. The Jewish people kept the vision alive. It is not too much to say that the vision kept the Jewish people alive. That's our vision of faith, that things will get better, that Hashem is going to come through for us and deliver us from the house of our bondage, from the enemies around us. Next year, we will be free. The Jewish people kept this vision alive, and that this vision kept the Jewish people alive. It is difficult at this distance in time. To realize the depth of the crisis, represented by the destruction of the Second Temple in the year 70 CE, the later suppression of the disastrous Bar revolt in 132 to 135 CE, the very foundations of Jewish existence had been destroyed. There was now no temple, no Jewish sovereignty. There was no kings or priests or prophets. Jerusalem had been raised to the ground and rebuilt as a Roman city in which Jews were forbidden to live more than six centuries later. Following the destruction of the First Temple, the people had come close to despair. Imagine. There were prophets at the time of the destruction of the First Temple. The statue of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, to assure the people they would return, the exile would be finite, temporary. It would last at most a single lifetime. And their intuition proved correct. There was no such assurance in the Roman times. To be sure, figures like Rabbi Kiba were confident that redemption would come. But his hopes were invested in Bar Kokhba. And when that uprising failed, so too did any hope that Israel's fortunes would be restored in the foreseeable future. A midrash of Jacob's dream of the ladder showed the angels going up and down the ladder, up and down the ladder. The Holy One, blesses me, he shows Jacob, the angel of Babylon ascending and descending, the angel of media Of Persia, ascending and descending. The angel of Greece, ascending and descending. The angel of Rome, ascending and not descending. And Jacob gets afraid. He thought, is it possible this one will never descend? Will the Roman Empire never come to an end? Holy One, blessed be, he said to him, fear not, my servant Jacob. This is the Midrash. Tanchuma, Payetze, number two. Every other exile has a finite duration, but the fall of Israel under the Rome seem to extend indefinitely into the future what happened next is one of the great acquired dramas of history the jewish people so bound to time and space seeing German history and its home in a specific land reconstituted itself as a nation outside time and space prayer took this place of sacrifice this is after the destruction of the second temple prayer took this place of sacrifice the study of torah replaced prophecy Repentance became a substitute for the great ritual of atonement performed by the high priest the Holy of Holies. The synagogue, a building that could be anywhere, became a fragment of the temple in Jerusalem. The Jewish people itself, once a nation, its own land, became a virtual community scattered through space, bound now by a mystical sense of collective responsibility. Israel said, Rabbi Bar is like a single body with a single soul. When one is afflicted, all feel the pain, all feel the pain. In exile everywhere, Jews were at home. In a text, we learned Torah, we were at home. The Torah became the portable homeland of the Jew. Imagine how Judaism changed, how we withstood exile. This is what we have to teach our children. These are the tools with which we resist and we escape exile. Prayer took the place of sacrifice. The study of Torah replaced prophecy. Repentance is a substitute of all the korbanot, the sacrifices. The study of Torah becomes prophecy. And our sitting a building that can be anywhere, is a fragment of our temple. These are the tools that give us solace in our exile and provide us with a way to survive the exile and give us identity. In exile everywhere, Jews were at home in a text. The Torah became the portable homeland of our Jews. We have to remember that. The Torah is our portable homeland, it's a virtual homeland. There's nothing remotely comparable in history. Next year in Jerusalem, next year we'll be free. It was a triumph of faith over circumstance. Okay, so we are really miracles. We are really miracles. We are survivors. All of us are survivors of thousands of years of history of oppression. Throughout the Middle Ages, individual Jews made the journey to the Holy Land. Rabbi Yehuda Levi, the Nahmanides Ramban, Rambam went to the Holy Land, and, and he couldn't live there for more than three months. He was under the the, the, uh, the Crusaders, and they were still fighting. The Crusaders and the Muslims were fighting. And Rambam was scared they'll take him and ransom him off. So he ran away to Egypt. The Ramchal, Rav Moshe Chaim moves to Israel. Rabbi Yosef Karo, the author of Shukhanar of Darizal, and other great rabbis, moved to, to Israel in the 18th and early 19th centuries. Followers of both the Hasidic movements and their opponents, disciples of the Bundagan, made their way to Israel in significant numbers. Yehuda HaLevi once compared the Jewish people to a seed In the book Kuzari, which is a um, historical novel, one of the first historical novels. You're going to read the book of it. Khazari, it's a fictional dialogue between the rabbi and the king of the Khazars. The king asks the rabbi a pointed question, how is it that you, if you are truly chosen by God, you are everywhere subjected to humiliation and persecution? Where is your greatness? The rabbi replies, listen to this reply. This is what we have to teach our children. We are like the seed of a great tree. When first planted in the ground, it appears to disintegrate. But is actually all the while gathering strength to grow. Eventually, it will put forth roots and shoots and begin to reach towards heaven. Yes, we are the seed. We have suffered so much, we are putrefied. But in that process, we are putting forth roots and shoots. And soon we will begin to reach to heaven. This is what Pesach was during more than 18 centuries of exile and dispersion, a seed planted in Jewish memory, waiting to be activated and to grow. Without Jews, without Pesach, we would certainly have disappeared, lacking hope of return, hope tempered by faith into a certainty like steel. There's no question. No Jew had a question mark. Are we going to be redeemed? We will be redeemed. Next year, introduce them. Next year, we will be free. They would have made their peace with their condition. Anyone else merged into their surrounding societies and ambient cultures and vanished like every other culture deprived of a home. Pesach, like a seed frozen and suspended in animation, contained the latent energy that led Jews of the 20th century to create one of the most remarkable accomplishments in the modern world, the rebirth of a, of a country. The rebirth of a land, the rebirth of a state, the rebirth of a nation and the people and the language. Misha's vision and Ezekiel's vision and Moses' vision are coming true. The story of Israel, its exiles, its exoduses, its survival against odds, its refusal to despair. Israel's existence has never been easy, not in biblical times and not today. It has always been a small country surrounded by large empires without the natural resources the wealth, the landmass, or demographic strength ever to become in worldly terms a superpower. All it had then and now was the individual strength and resourcefulness of the people and its faith and a way of life. The relationship between God and Israel has always been fraught. There were times when the people turned away from God. There were times when Hashem hid his face from the people, which we talked about. We talked about Esther, Hester, hidden, hidden face, but the name Israel Itself, according to the Torah, means one who wrestles with God and with man and prevails. We will wrestle till the end with our belief in God and we will prevail. Yes, there is a God. Yes, God will save us. Reading the story of the Exodus against the history of the Jewish people through the ages, one thing shines with greater intensity than all the others the way that monotheism confers dignity and responsibility on the individual. This is another fact to teach our children. Our belief in one God. Confers dignity and responsibility on every individual, why because we are created in the image of God, every individual equally. there is no hierarchy in heaven, therefore there is ideally no hierarchy on earth. We are each called upon to be holy, each one of us to be knowledgeable like priests, to be kingdom of priests, a holy nation, visionary like prophets. The ideal society is one formed by covenant which we Each accept responsibility for the fate of the nation. It's not democracy in the Greek sense, which is about government and power. It's about society as a moral enterprise. It's about freedom as responsibility, not freedom as autonomy. It's about liberty, not license. It's about freedom as the collective achievement of a people who knows what it tastes like to eat the bread of affliction. And knows also that a society of everyone for himself is less likely to result in a promised land. Then ra- rather back to where Egypt, it is a difficult freedom, but it's one worth living. Society where everyone is valued, where everyone has dignity, where there may be economic differences, but no class distinction. Where no one is so poor as to be deprived of the essentials of existence. Where responsibility is not delegated up or down, but distributed through the population. Where children are precious the elderly are respected, where education is the highest priority, where no one stands aside from his duties to the nation as a whole. Such societies are morally strong, even if they are small and outnumbered. That is the Jewish faith. That is what Israel, the people, the land, and the story means. I want to finish off with this beautiful idea. It's a gorgeous idea. There's one passage which is missing from the Haggadah. And perhaps, let's try and reinstate it. (laughs) Got to it. We're going to talk about it. Okay, we'll talk about it. It occurs to the point when the great rabbi, Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah, we all remember this. This beautiful story in the Haggadah. Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah, he says, "Hare ben I am like a man of seventy years old. The rabbis say his hair turned white overnight. Why? Because he was young, and they wanted to make him the chief rabbi. They wanted to make him the chief rabbi, and his hair. Yeah, they didn't want to make him. He was too young to be chief rabbi. So what happened that night? His hair turned white. There's a whole big discussion. Why did his hair turn white? He made discussions. And he compares himself to a 17-year-old man. Maybe the burdens of being the chief rabbi of leadership made his hair turn gray overnight. The Gemara Brahot 28a, if you want to look it up. But he never understood until now. Why was we mentioned the exodus from Egypt at night? Because the Torah says, call Yamecha Yecha, you remember the coming out of Egypt all the days of your life. Elazar ben Azariah says, there's the days of your life. Ben Zoma, the other great rabbi, explains to him. Ben Zoma inferred it from the phrase, you remember the, the days of your of exodus out of Egypt all the days of your life. There's an extra word, said Ben Zoma. The word all is extra, it comes to include nights. Not so, said the sages. It comes to include the messianic age. It comes to include the days of the Messiah. This extra word, all, all the days of your life. So the days, I'm talking about the days of your life. You have to remember the coming out of Egypt. All is come to tell us to remember the coming out of Egypt, even as the Messiah comes. There, the text breaks off in the Haggadah. It is, in fact, an extract from the Mishnah. However, the Talmud in Brachot 12b tells us how the conversation continued. Ben Zoma said to the sages, Will we remember the coming out of Egypt in the Messianic age? Do not the prophets, Jeremiah, say otherwise? For he said, the days are coming, declares Hashem, where people will no longer say, as surely as Hashem lives, who brought the Israelites out of Egypt. But they will say, as surely as Hashem lives, who brought the descendants of Israel up out of the land of the north and out of all the countries where he had banished them. Then they will live in their own land. Benzema says, when the Messiah comes, we'd have even greater stories to tell than the exodus from Egypt. Our greatest stories will be our exodus from the lands we are exiled to over 2,000 years. Can you imagine each one of us would have a story to tell? Our ancestors would have a story to tell how we came back from all the different lands, not just from Egypt. Egypt was a small, a small exodus, but here we have this massive exodus of Jews being exiled to four corners of the world, all coming back to our land. And that's what Benzema says. And the sages said, you know what? You're right, Benzema. When the Messiah comes, we'll still remember the Exodus of Egypt, but we will have even larger exoduses to thank Hashem for. And there are stories that change the world, none more remarkable than a Pesach, the master narrative of hope. It is through narrative we begin to learn who we are and how we are called on to behave. We have to teach our children our stories. Otherwise, they will be left unscripted, anxious stutterers in their actions as in their words. We have to know who we are and what is our task in this world. This is a fundamental to understanding why the Torah is a kind of book. and It's not a theological treatise or a metaphysical system, but a series of interlinked stories extended over time. From Abraham and Sarah's journey to Moses and the Israelites wandering in the desert, Judaism is less about truth and system than about truth as a story. And we are part of that story. That is what it means to be a Jew. A large part of what Moshe Rabbeinu is doing in the book of, of Deuteronomy of Varim is retelling that story to the next generation, reminding them of what Hashem did for their parents and of some mistakes their parents made. Moses, as well as being the great liberator, is the supreme storyteller. Yet what he does in Pasha Ki extends way beyond this. He tells the people that they, when they enter, conquer, and settle the land, they must bring the first ripened fruits to the central sanctuary of the temple, as a way of giving thanks to Hashem, a Mishnah and Bikorim, describes the joyous scene as people converged on Jerusalem from across the country, bringing their fruits to the accompaniment of music and celebration, merely bringing the fruits that was not enough. Each person had to make a declaration. That declaration is part of a Haggadah. That declaration became one of the best-known passages in the Torah, because though it was originally sent on Shavuot, the festival of first fruits, it became a central element in the Haggadah on Seder night. What do we say? My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down into Egypt and lived there, few in number. There became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians ill-treated us and made us suffer, subjecting us to harsh labor. We cried out to Hashem, the God of our fathers, and Hashem heard our voice and saw our misery, toil, and oppression. So Hashem brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, with great terror, with signs and wonders. It's in Devarim, chapter 26. Here for the first time, the retelling of our nation's history becomes an obligation for every citizen of the nation. In this act known as vidui Bikurim, the confession made over verse fruits, Jews were commanded, as it were, to become a nation of storytellers. Only in Israel nowhere else is the injunction to remember felt as a religious imperative to the entire people. Time and time again through Deuteronomy and Dvarim. Remember you were a slave in Egypt. Remember what Amalek did to you. Remember what Hashem did to Miriam. Remember the days of old. Consider the generations long past. Ask your father and he will tell you. Your elders and they will explain to you. This is the entire history of our nation in summary form. This is how we transmit our heritage to our children. By telling them our story. Our long history. And that is the formula on Pesach night. Haggadah or Pesach is Sipuri Yetzirah This It's not just a regular Sipur which we say every night in the Shema. Every, day, every morning in the Shema. It's a dialogue. It's dialogue of generations. It's bringing the generations together around the Seder table and having dialogue and telling them this is what our dreams are, this is what our history is, and our history is going to repeat itself. We were exiles in Egypt and we were slaves to Pharaoh. We may be in exile now, we may be in Israel now, but nevertheless, we're going to have our freedom eventually. Hashem is going to provide our redeemer, Israel Hashem, speedily in our days. It's going to happen sooner or later, Bezran Hashem. We're coming close to the end. And let's stick it out and let's pass it down to our children, this message for generations. Wish you all a a healthy, happy Kosher Pesach. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.